Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Andy. Hello! And Kennedy. What up, what up? And today we are talking about the TOS episode, Balance of Terror, consistently cited as one of the best TOS episodes that there is. I would honestly say it's one of the best Star Trek episodes that there is. Agreed. Yeah. Well, before we jump into that, we have a lot to talk about. Before we get into that, we have a bit of housekeeping to do first. As always, we like to remind you that our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get some awesome rewards, from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries, and we are brainstorming possibly some more content that we could bring to the Patreon. So uh, to join us over there, visit patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A little bit of additional information this time, we have a Public store. We soft launched this a couple weeks ago, but now there's a lot more stuff in it. There's some new designs based on our new banner art, which are awesome. There's some logo designs. There is our uh, Idic Means BLM shirt that all proceeds from that shirt will be donated in perpetuity to the Ochre Project. So that is up there, as well as some non-podcast specific Star Trek designs. So you can check out our Public store at tpublic.com slash stores with an S slash women at warp. And finally, Grace has recently been transcribing a ton of our back catalog really cranking out these transcriptions. It's kind of amazing. She's a machine! (laughs) (laughs) Every day, she says, another one's done. Another two are done. And we're like, damn, girl. We now have more than 80 episodes transcribed. So that is more than half of our back catalog. And uh, the transcripts live on our website attached to each episode post in the show notes. So you can read them or share them with other fans who might otherwise have difficulties accessing the content of our show. So did I miss anything in our housekeeping today? You were very thorough, Sue, and I was truly impressed. (laughs) That's what bullet points will get (laughs) you. Organization! If there's a list to make, I'm gonna make it. All right. (laughs) Let's get into this episode, Balance of Terror. I'm going to rattle off a little bit of fact stuff in that the original air date of this episode was December 15th, 1966. It is a first season TOS episode. Depending on what list you follow, this could be episode 8, it could be episode 15, because we've got air date order versus production order, etc., etc. Written by Paul Schneider, frequently appears on best of lists, as we've mentioned. And yeah, so where where would y'all like to start today? Well, first of all, in case people you know, forgot, I don't know how, but maybe you did. I'm not going to judge you. This episode is the one where we first see the Romulans and Kirk and the Romulan captain get into like this Captain V Captain tense like space battle stuff. And like the underlying subtext of it all is racism is bad. And that's what Balance of Terror is about. I, I almost feel like if we if we want to be specific, right, racism descri- is a term that describes a system of power based on race. In this instance, it, I feel like more specifically it combats bigotry and prejudices. Mm-hmm. And xenophobia. Yeah, yeah, those three in particular. 
And I, I only split that hair with you, Andy, because now more than ever, these terms in their in their vermissibility need to be, you know, explained, right? And precise. Exactly. So everybody was, well, not everybody, your boy Styles was super bigoted, super <laughs> prejudiced, okay? Everybody was a little xenophobic. Everybody, yeah. including Spock. Spock, his reaction to seeing the Romulans for the first time was, I, Leonard Nimoy, my God, you know, he, he just, how can I even explain it? Like the look on his face was like, well, this is going to be bad. <laughs> 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 but can we just for a second recognize that in this very early episode in Spock's arc, he like is just now thinking, oh, Romulans might be related to Vulcans. It's not even a sure thing yet. It's like, oh, this might be what happened. And by the end of what we see of him in in Star Trek, he is working on reunification. Right. And that's his goal in life is to to bring the Romulans and the Vulcans back together, so much so that he quote unquote dies trying to stop their son from going supernova. Like damn. Yeah. That's a character arc. Y'all. It is, for real. And I'll be honest, with prejudices, 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 <laughs> and stuff, this episode made me think about my own prejudices, if we're being completely, you know, transparent, because I don't like Romulans. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if that's, you know, the, the Klingon in me, or, or because every time we see them, they're doing terrible things, or what, you know? It's, it's hard for me to look at a Romulan episode and not be like, mm. you know, here we go. These ones, <laughs> watch your purse. Don't turn your back, you know, which is all really prejudiced and bigoted stuff to say. Well, how meta of you, Kennedy. <laughs> no, it's just, it's very funny that you, you bring that up in terms of your Klingonness. Because I have always just kind of been like, oh, Klingon culture, it's a lot. I don't really get it. But I have always loved the Romulans. Really? Oh my god, I can't stand a Romulan. Ugh. I also, though, like, this is not an endorsement of the author, because I am using this reference. Okay. But I also consider myself a Slytherin. So... Ah. That might go hand in hand a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, really? You're, you give me more of a of a claw feel. I'm a slither claw. Okay. <laughs> but but no, I've always appreciated the like devious secretiveness that we get with with Romulan culture, and I I just I find it fascinating. Uh. But while we're we're on the basis of like introducing the Romulans, like this is they're introduced before the Klingons. And Klingons become allies by next-gen time. So the Romulans are also, like, the longest-running adversary of Starfleet in the franchise. It's true. So when it comes full circle, not to go terribly off-topic, when it comes full full circle in shows like Picard, where we see, you know, not humanitarian efforts, but because that's pretty racist of us to assume that that (laughs) help for another species is human in nature and origin only. Um, But, you know, and in the rush to save those millions of people from, from that catastrophe, like I, seeing there, there were two different types of Romulans uh, was interesting as well. So to see all that, to see that it's, it started here with balance of terror and then grew into this giant opposing force that has always kind of been, I'm sorry, guys, I'm still stuck on the fact that Sue's a Slytherin. I don't even know. Can we sit together anymore? <laughs> I'm a Gryffindor, so I kind of have to act like I don't know you in the halls now, because I thought your robes were blue I mean, to me. I'm not the evil kind. Yeah, okay. 
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I do want to talk about this a little bit, though, because one of the things that I think the show does well is they don't make Styles our shithead on the bridge. Mm-hmm. They don't make him xenophobic without reason, right. right? He lost family to the Romulans. He doesn't trust them because his experience with them has been negative. So, like, that is an understandable and very human reaction. And one of the reasons why, you know, xenophobia in our world actually exists. So I appreciate that even though he sucked, there were reasons for him sucking. And that reason in particular is what keeps this episode so poignant and timeless to this day. Because how many, you know, Confederate right-wing people, I'm trying to be very genteel and not use slurs, people <laughs> will will rest their laurels on that. Oh, it's not, you know, rooted in racism. This is heritage. This is my family. This flag means this. And it's like, well, okay, but you didn't fight that war. That was you, the whatever family members that you have in that war that might have perished in it are so far removed from you that you're not even blood-related anymore. So relax. They don't know you. You don't know them. This is why this argument doesn't really hold water with me, like, ever. Mm -hmm. Because this war was a 100 years ago, right? Like, my grandfather fought in World War II. My grandfather was imprisoned by the Germans. I don't hate all German people because of that. Right. Yeah. So this this idea of, like, you hurt my family a 100 years ago, Therefore, I hate you. Like, I have just never really understood that. Yeah, and I think that the episode itself addresses it because Kirk's response to this very human reaction is, it was their war, not yours. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you got to let that go. You can't let those wounds of the past impact how you're handling the situation now because that hatred that fear is going to make you make mistakes and it's gonna bias your the way that you approach the situation yeah i also appreciated the fact that kirk nipped it in the butt immediately absolutely like he didn't let slide comments eke out here and there Mm -hmm. you know the way the rest of the crew was kind of like okay like they just kind of looked at him like no one said anything no one checked him and if kirk hadn't done it i don't know if anybody else would have you know what I mean? But he kept trying. That's true. Like he didn't he didn't just do it once. He, you know, give him the give him the thing to decode. I bet he can do it. Yep. Microaggressions. Yeah. Kirk calls him on it every time. Every time. I love that and I forgot about that. I remembered how, how gross and bigoted Styles was, but I forgot about the the fact that Kirk was being an ally and a friend. Before anybody got a chance to say anything, Kirk was like, whoa, 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 let me talk to you for a minute. Come on over here. Let me chat with you real fast. What you're not about to do is sit here and talk shit about my friend in front of me, all right? You're not about to talk shit about my friend at all, really. So whatever kind of problem you got, you need to go home and think about that for a second before you come up on my bridge. Are we clear? And it's beautiful because Spock doesn't do that for himself. Through the whole episode, Spock just internalizes it. He doesn't do a thing. He pretends it doesn't bother him. I think we can all agree it probably does bother him. Right. And instead, Kirk is the one that is constantly calling it out. And how many times have any of us ever heard something bigoted towards us, towards others? And every time you got to do that calculation. Do I speak up 
do I say something? Is it gonna like? Are they gonna get angry? Are we gonna have to fight? Like, right. w- and there's a cost calculation that you make in your head. Like, is is me speaking up going to do anything? Am I tired today? You know what right. I mean? Well, what Kirk has going for him there is that he's in charge. Yeah. Right. But also, it it makes me wonder. I mean, they only have a limited number of characters they can deal with, right, on the show week to week. But how much of this in Kirk's character? Is it because this guy's coming for Spock specifically? That's what I'm saying. I feel like he he probably would have checked it if had had anybody said anything bigoted about anybody else in the crew just on some Starfleet stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that Styles kept coming for Spock is why Kirk was like, "You're not going to talk about my friend. You're not. You're not. You're not. You're not. Not in front of me. Not in front of anybody. If you do it again, I'm going to fight you. Like I'm not playing with yeah. you." <laughs> I really wondered how much of Spock anticipated, well, he probably rationalized it, right? In in him internalizing it, he probably figured, okay, this is a human being that we're dealing with. They react to things pretty weird when they don't need to. Um, If I saw somebody who was trying to kill me that looked like my science officer, I would probably, well, no, I wouldn't be a little alarmed, but they get alarmed with that kind of stuff. All right, I'm not going to pinch him. I'm not going to put the pinch on his neck. I'm going to leave him alone because he's human and he can't help himself. I feel like Spock showed a lot of grace in this. Yeah, the other thing that this episode kind of highlights that the show explores more later but is always just kind of there is Spock is an other on this ship. Yeah, and the only other. Yeah, he's the only non-human on this ship and there's always that conflict, that internal conflict and that conflict of he does not see things the way that everybody else sees things. And that's definitely a plus for him in many ways like how many times has his perspective helped them save the day but it also keeps him separate and they address it in this episode much more straightforwardly than they do in most episodes but it's always kind of a little bit there you know even in jokes and mccoy making jokes about his Mm -hmm. green-blooded friend right Mm -hmm. so i find it very cool that they actually address that Spock is different and that difference is like felt both overtly and like underlying all of the interactions. I don't think we've like explicitly said it, but just in case, what is going on in these scenes is that we see the Romulans, they look just like Spock. Therefore, Styles believes that Spock must be one of the enemy. Right? Right. And that that's where this is all coming from. The, and the thing I don't want us to like leave this part of the conversation without bringing this up. And I could very well be overanalyzing here because that is another thing that I do along with my lists. <laughs> but the only time we see Styles get any backup from anybody else on the ship is when Sulu agrees that they should have a security alert. And like, that's worth noting to me because like exactly what Styles is doing happened to George Takei. Like he and his family were forcibly relocated into internment camps during World War II because they looked like the enemy, quote unquote. And it's just like, I would love to, if I ever get the chance to talk to George Takei, I would be curious to know if, if he was remembers even if he was thinking about that sort of thing during the filming of this episode i thought about this when they had 
later on in the episode, they kind of have a war room scene. Mm-hmm. And both Sulu and Styles are in that scene. And Sulu is a pretty big part of that scene tactically. And the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm looking at George Takei and I'm like, this is his experience. Like, mm-hmm. this is literally something that happened to him and his family. This is, he was a part of one of the worst stains of American history. And they don't really address it, but his presence there does speak to what Star Trek was trying to do. Because there was very specific reasons why Gene Roddenberry wanted Sulu and he wanted Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And he wanted Uhura. Like, right. they weren't there by accident. He, like, specifically said he wanted Chekhov on the bridge because he wanted to show that in the future we wouldn't have be holding grudges against the Russians, even though they were the enemy at the exact time that they were making the show. That's why he did it. It was very specific. And so Sulu being in that scene to me was really poignant in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it definitely spoke to, you know, the the broadness of human nature, right? And our knee-jerk reactions to fear what we don't immediately understand. Mm -hmm. The fact that every human being on that bridge suddenly looked at Spock like, oh, snap. (laughs) And being in that war room, first of all, just seeing Sulu in that war room was perfect because he was the only non-white person there. And just seeing how he, like you said, contributed to some of that fear mongering. It just, it makes it real hard to make a case for human beings. You know, (laughs) when, when you look back over the catalog of humanity and include, let's say Star Trek into this and see some of the things that human beings have done in this universe as well. It's like, okay, we're, we're scrappy (laughs) and we got heart. There's lots of chutzpah here, but (laughs) Oh man, guys, can we have a powwow? Can we talk? Because we're really, this is embarrassing. Like, there are other species we got to deal with now. Like, I don't want to be held to a standard that you all have forced the rest of the galaxy to hold us to, you know? Yeah, Yeah, and I do want to kind of go back to what you said before about this idea of an unknown enemy. I thought that it was particularly smart and canny to have the two things with the Romulans. One is a weapon that they don't understand. A big, world-ending weapon. And they reference nuclear war several times. And, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the fact that they're using nuclear weapons. And right. uh, 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 we we did the same thing. You know, like, these are these are other atrocities that America has been involved in. But the other thing is the cloaking. An unknown enemy that you cannot see. And, like, if you can't see your enemy's face, like, how are you supposed to... Identify them? How are you supposed to under... Yeah, how are you supposed to understand them as a person? Right. You know what I mean? And, like, I thought it was really a good device and a metaphor to have cloaking be the thing that the Romulans are known for. They're attacking from stealth. They're they're unknown. They're They're scary because you don't know what their intentions are. You don't know where they're coming from. It's almost like a horror-like concept, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to say that we've we've talked about Romulans in the past and some of the Orientalist tropes that come into play when we're talking about them, because they're an interesting mix of, like, Roman and then, like, some mishmash of Orientalist tropes. And that's 
a really common trope for anti-Asian sentiment is like you, they're inscrutable. You can't ever tell what they're thinking or what they're going to do. You know what I mean? Mm. So I just really think that this episode is really nuanced in some of its portrayals. So many ways. All of the, just bit the basing of Romulan culture on Roman culture gives this really weird parallel of familiarity, you know, especially if you studied any Roman history, a lot of the terms that they use, a lot of the terms that they call each other by, like in terms of rank, is is kind of like, okay, this is familiar to me yeah. in that I've heard this before. So why do I feel so uneasy when when I'm talking about them? You know what I mean? It's, it gives this weird... I don't want to say double entendre because that's not an accurate term, but it's got this, this, uh, I don't know, oxymoronic kind of dual synergy <laughs> thing going on where it's like, okay, I know what a praetor is. Okay. I know what a, a, a commander is like, okay. Um, uh, Oh, what was the, the blonde dude? That, Centurion. Centurion. Like they use all of those terms, um, Senator uh, and stuff like that. So it's like, okay, I know what that is. Cool, cool. I know what that is. Oh, right. That's what this guy does. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I know what these, these terms are meant to relay, but I'm looking at the people attached to these terms and it puts a weird, like xenophobic connotation on it. And I, it's, it's frustrating for me because it's not in this case, a fear of the unknown because there's elements of it that are known or at least familiar draw some type of parallel something that's familiar to us. It almost makes it a fear of the known, right? Because when you think about Roman culture, ancient Roman culture, like they were the original colonizers. So to see that and be like, oh, I know what this means. Oh, I know what that guy does. Oh, snap, you guys are out here doing it too. There are dictators and there are conquests. Right. It's like, you know, you have this history with with these terms that you're then like imprinting on the the culture based on them in this fictional setting. Yeah, and I also think that it kind of goes to the point of this episode is supposed to be that Kirk and the other captain are a mirror of each other. Oh, for sure. American culture is 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 also really heavily influenced by Roman Greek yeah. culture. So like when you take that same basis under uh, underlying the the quote unquote enemy, what does that say about us? So it's like it it kind of plays into that whole mirroring aspect. Right. Before we move on, I want to talk a little bit more about that war room scene because another aspect of it that I was really impressed with was McCoy and how McCoy mm-hmm. throughout this entire episode is basically as he usually is the mouthpiece for the human cost. Right. The yeah. cost of human lives lost and the cost of, you know, even the enemy's lives cost. But every single time we're having a conversation, McCoy is there to go, but what about everybody's lives? Won't someone think of the children? <laughs> yeah, but like, really, like, he's always there to be the conscience. He's the only one on the ship who doesn't, who who isn't willing to start a war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely reacted like a doctor. Before anything else. Exactly. I love that. I love how much he hates people, but like loves peoples, if that makes <laughs> any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Like he's a grumpy son of a bitch, but he will fight to save your life every yeah. single time. And not just like, oh, he'll patch you up. 
he'll fight to protect you Mm -hmm. and to keep you from getting hurt in the first place. But he doesn't have to like you. Exactly. (laughs) And he's going to roast you while he does it. And that's, that's McCoy. Oh my gosh, the roasting. The McCoy roastings are some of the best. And, and it, it almost makes you like, so when he would get into that green-blooded hobgoblin nonsense towards mm-hmm. Spock, it was like, bro, like you of all people know how inappropriate that is. And yeah, he somehow manages to make it like playful. I, I'm, it's weird because on paper it, it doesn't, work and you should absolutely should not speak to people like that and yet something about how charming the actor is i don't know well there seems to be some sort of understanding between spock and mccoy yeah. right because the spock also gives it right back but also can destroy him with a look so i mean they've all made out right let's be real <laughs> all three of them have totally made out in their own way in some drunken <laughs> night like we've all seen that movie where the besties are like, bro, I love you, bro, bro, I love you, bro. And then they're making out. Um, so I'm convinced the three of them individually and collectively have probably made out at some point over the course of their five-year mission. OT3 for sure. Yeah. But <laughs> what I found interesting was how much Kirk and the Romulan commander were making out. Like, they were totally playing chess on AOL chat rooms <laughs> and circa 1997 like getting off on the fact that we keep putting each other in check like they like because they romanticized each other mm-hmm. I would do that this is something I would do oh wow he's really mm, this guy he's <laughs> he's cut from the same cloth as me like they were ma- they were basically like admiring the other in a way they were like uh it, like the, the, their favorite parts of each other were their favorite parts of themselves. Mm. So it was like, ooh, I like how you wear this suit. I got the same one. That's nice. Oh, it looks great on you too here? Okay. Okay. I see you. Give me my suit though, because it's mine. You can't be in here wearing the same thing. We out here in the same place. Like, you got to go home or I got to go home. So I'm not going home, just so that's clear. So you got to go. And that happened because they wanted to create an adversary for Kirk who was equally matched with Kirk. Yeah. Like it kind of, it, and that just like pinged my brain of like computer create an adversary worthy of data. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. Probably the worst, the only terrible thing that Jordy has ever said. <laughs> I mean, that's why this, this character is so great is because they gave this Romulan commander who is later at some point given the name Karis. It's just Sarek rearranged um they give Karis like so he's so complex right we see he's not just this like bad guy out of nowhere we learn in this short episode that he's tired of war and wishes it would just end Mm -hmm. and like but he's still gonna do his duty but he kind of hopes that the information he's sending back to his government isn't gonna get there before the ship is destroyed like it's so complicated but he's also not like shirking any of his duties to make that happen. And um, Mark Leonard has said that this role was one of the best roles he ever had on TV. Wow. And uh, in, in These Are the Voyages, the, I highly recommend this book, he, he said in comparing it to Sarek, he said, in many ways, I did enjoy that role, Sarek, but I think the more demanding role and the better acting role was the Romulan commander. Oh. Yeah, they were definitely... Uh making out with each other and themselves. It's like they were both a set of <laughs> twins 
and they like swapped twins for a second. It was like, oh, <laughs> this is hot. Let's get it. Um, but I also like the fact that even though now we we know what we know about Romulans, or at least you know, we know what we don't know about them, uh-huh. there was no malice, like overt malice anyway, on the Romulan ship. It was all about duty. It was all about following orders. It was all about, you know, completing the mission. Whereas in a lot of other depictions of other species, other cultures, if they have beef with the Federation, like, you can tell. Like, I don't like you. <laughs> you or your imperious little shiny ship. Okay, get out of here. Whereas these guys are just like, okay, they're the enemy. They're wordless, they're nameless, they're faceless. It doesn't matter who they are as individuals. It doesn't matter what I think about them as individuals. All that matters is that I do my job. So it was, it was great to get a a very neutral soundboard, I guess, for for lack of a better term, of the Romulans, which a, a number of the other cultures introduced in Trek, we didn't necessarily get. You know, when we when we heard about the or the Ferengi for the first time, they were mm. instantly depicted as you know little gremlins. So oh boy, they it could have been so much worse though. Oh, absolutely! Oh my gosh, the Ferengi episode. Oh, who, the whips! Don't get me the- started. But, like, the memo about what they were supposed to be. Anyway, not this episode. We will, at some point, discuss Ferengi and racism against Ferengi and racism within Ferengi culture. That is an episode we will do so. It really is. That, that is a whole other sandwich there. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, like, I, even though I, I have disdain for Romulans, it was, uh, ref- it was important for me to, as a person who has disdain, to see a very neutral portrayal of them that wasn't tainted by, you know, opinions or, or misconceptions, I guess, to be fair, either. So I will give it that credit. Like, the complexities and the nuances in, in this were definitely on point and very rarely seen since. Mark Leonard's performance in this is really, everything hinges on it. Mm-hmm. Mm. The episode would not work if he did not turn in that performance because we needed someone who was an adversary, who was an antagonist, but that you didn't hate and that you were almost rooting for, even though he's just killed a bunch of a bunch of humans, a bunch of people, and yet somehow he still managed to to, to turn in a sympathetic portrayal. That makes you, like, look that into the face and be like, even in war, even when people in war do things, they're still on the other side. They're still a person. And they still have reasons. And, you know, and it just, that's important. Because when you start getting into faceless enemies that you don't think of as people, that's when things get real bad. Right. Right. So I I thought it was really important that they were able to at least see him at the end. The one thing I did, there were two other parts that I, I, I thought were, that I reacted to strongly when rewatching it. One of them was Spock making a mistake. Hmm. I can't think of times, another time, when Spock has made a mistake like that, at any rate. You know what I mean? Uh, him accidentally setting off that signal was like, Spock, baby, what is you doing? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> He was very preoccupied about this revelation. Right. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> no, that has to be it. It's got to be it, Sue, because I can't think of any 
other logical reason. Unless he just wanted to get back at Styles. Take this, asshole. <laughs> he could have done literally anything. He could have put a wet finger in his hair. He could have tripped <laughs> that dude. He could have kicked that chair out from under him. I don't know. Spock could have found a way. I, I feel like he was so preoccupied by that revelation and by the weight and the magnitude of the situation that they were in and, and his human nerves, right? I'm sure he got a little nervous because everything was relying upon that station. I know he was thinking, oh God, if I mess this up, I'll never hear the, I'll never hear the end of it from Styles. I'll never hear the end of it. This goes my commission. I'm going to get transferred to another ship. They're going to put me on a space station and something rock somewhere. Oh God, is that a button? You know, so <laughs> I thought it was really interesting to see Spock be fallible. The other thing that I shrieked about led me to the uh, another thing that, that Andy and I apparently both shrieked about too is when the ship got hit and everybody got flung in a million places. Uhura straight up stood up. <laughs> she stood up and was like, nope, I'm over here. I'm going to hide. I'm going to stand in this doorway because I'm not being flung around on this ship. My behind is hanging out as it is. You're not doing this to me. And I just thought it was great that Everybody else flailed, and Uhura was like, nope, not today. <laughs> not it's that today. dancer training. It's yeah. that dancer balance. <laughs> yep, exactly. She definitely pirouetted into that corner, into safety. And then Styles heads down to the phaser bay to help in the phaser bay, and Uhura just, calm as anything, takes over the helm. Yep. Navigator Uhura, which I have in my notes, in all caps, <laughs> written, like huge with lots of exclamation points because that was amazing. And I liked that it was understated. It was just Kirk being like, Uhura, take the helm. And Uhura being like, yes, sir. And taking the helm. And no one takes over for her. She transfers her station, or at least it's implied. Yeah, she keeps doing her communication stuff from mm -hmm. the helm. Mm -hmm. So she's doing two jobs right there and she's doing both excellently yeah amazing for sure i uh did peep how shatner watched her walk up there though <laughs> <laughs> i can't 100 percent blame him to be honest she, yeah she's a babe she's beauty in human form for sure but yeah just nothing and that's how it's supposed to be done like don't call attention to the fact i'm glad they didn't bring up any music I'm glad nobody said anything. Oh my gosh, can you imagine if it was that TOS shitty thing that they did where they like smeared the, the Vaseline on the lens and like go into soft focus and zoom in on the woman's face while that cheesy music plays in the background? Yeah. <sighs> Which they very rarely did for her. Yeah. That, and that's because, well, I've got... <sighs> Don't get me started on how they... Had, <laughs> on, on what Nichelle had to go through in production with them. Yeah. Don't get me started because I have, I have, I have spoons. Okay. We can have a tea party about it. We can, <laughs> but yeah, when she got up, I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. You gotta fly the ship too. Go ahead. Fly it. Go ahead. You can fly it and talk on the phone. Who's going to be mad about it? Captain told you to do it. What's up? What's really good. It was awesome. <laughs> really great. Un uh, like understated moment of the episode that just highlights how important Uhura is on that bridge. She's not just there to look gorgeous, although she does that too. Right. She's doing three jobs on the bridge. Yeah. One thing that I was struck by, uh, and we were talking about this kind of a little bit, in that the Romulan captain and Kirk are like their mirror and like their mutual respect for each other, but how 
hard did this make y'all think of submarine movies? Oh, like so much. World War II submarine movies. So much. And that is intentional as it was based on the film Run Silent Run Deep. Ah, see? Okay, so I immediately, once I, 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 like, finished this episode, I went online and started looking up submarine movies and was like, is there one that could have influenced this episode? Because I can't see how it didn't. Actually, it was that one, but also more um, the 1957 film The Enemy Below. Yeah. So it was those two in particular, but it, it's 100% a submarine film. Oh, Yeah. The, the way they just, like, sit quietly, and it's, like, so tense, but you can't do anything. The way they maintain tension across this episode in general was masterful, but, like, that, like, quiet edge of the storm kind of thing. Ooh, that was good. And so exceedingly unnecessary. There is no sound in space. <laughs> they could not be heard. They could have thrown a deck-wide party. <laughs> on the Enterprise, and the Romulans would not have been able to hear them. So the fact that they not only went dark, but they went silent, too, was like, this is unnecessary. We're in space. We are not under war. Oh, right. The 60s. Okay, so now we have to have Kenny Science Corner. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm down for that. I'm all about having a little science sidebar. Sign a science bar. If you sign bar instead of sidebar, it's spelled S C I D E bar. I love the. I mean, we don't know it in this episode yet, but how they they sort of play out the Romulan technology. Mm-hmm. Their ships are powered by singularities. I think it makes a ton of sense that they like their their cloak takes up so much power that they have to decloak to fire weapons. I'd love to see something in the canon about, like, scientists in- on Romulus working on fixing that problem so they can fire while cloaked, you know? And, like, I would think that would be one of the major things that, that their, their, I guess, war department uh, right. <laughs> to, would, would be working on. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's just it's, – it's fascinating how they – how Star Trek sort of went – I'm not going to say out of its way, but, but did the most – to make sure that these cultures were different. It's not just, oh, everybody has warp drive. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. Which is important to note. Once you see that there are, that there's room for differences, that there's room for learning curves and discrepancies when you consider all of the different cultures in this galaxy, in this, in this, by meaning like this Star Trek galaxy, it makes it a little bit more accessible. Right. If I know that Romulans have an issue with firing when cloaked, that means that any other things could be possible for another species who has warp technology. You know what I mean? So it's not all this blanket. Everything's great in the future because we can go all go wherever we want. Like it, 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 it establishes complexities. It makes it easier to suspend disbelief. And I do want to bring up a couple of things that struck me. You were talking earlier, Kennedy, about how out of the ordinary it was to see Spock make a mistake. Oh, my God. I was like, baby, what is you doing? (laughs) One thing that I noticed and appreciated about this episode was, well, Kirk in general is amazing in this episode. Yeah. But one thing that I really liked is that Kirk is allowed 
uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have a whole scene where McCoy, yet again, playing the conscience and, like, being that spokesman for the human side of the equation. He gets to, to sit there and be like, why me? What if I mess up? And, and when he's on the bridge, you don't see any of that. He yeah. seems completely in control. He is he is making really tough decisions without blinking. You don't see any of that. So you get this quiet moment where you see that he doesn't know that he's doing the right thing. Yeah. He's not entirely sure of himself. And I find that awesome. Yeah. Because Kirk is such a hero to so many people. And he's like an original template for a lot of the heroes that we see in media. Mm-hmm. And instead of making him this cocky douche, you know, you give him, you make him thoughtful and he, he's thinking about the things that matter. And he's thinking about how he could mess up and ruin people's lives. And I love that. And it kind of makes me sad that the cultural memory of Kirk, I feel like has been so corrupted mm-hmm. into thinking that he's just some swaggering, macho, womanizing jerk when he's actually extremely thoughtful and precise and takes time and strategic on on these decisions and he knows what the costs could be if he's wrong and i love that scene and i love that speech that mccoy makes to him about how we're all individuals and how amazing it is that we exist at all as who we are as as the people we are and not to throw that away lightly beautiful scene and that that scene specifically is from Roddenberry's rewrite. That whole like three million galaxies, three million million that, and in all the universe, don't kill the one named Kirk. That is one hundred percent Gene Roddenberry. Mm. It's beautiful. I gotta give a, a nod to William Shatner in this. Great performance. We, we can we can say what we want about things, right? But <laughs> <laughs> that performance was one of the best I've seen from him ever on the bridge. He's cool, calm, collected. He's young looking. He's youthful. His, his, all his skin is gorgeous, glowing everywhere, just <laughs> sparkly, right? But laying down in his quarters, and when Yeoman Rand walks in to see if he's okay, you can see he quickly composes himself for her sake but doesn't have enough in him to completely, you know, put the mask back on and clock back in. It's not until Bones comes back that he's like, oh, thank God. You know, he can finally let his hair down for a second. And in that moment, as he's saying, you know, why me? I, I want to take a vacation. Like, I don't want to do this. He looked older. Mm-hmm. You know, all the weight of and the maturity of the decisions that he would have to make were apparent on his face. And it was only in that scene that, I mean, I feel like William Shatner, as he's aged, looks completely different, like almost two different people, whereas most folks look like just an older version of themselves. I feel like older William Shatner looks completely different than younger William Shatner. But in that scene, I was like, oh, yes, that's the same person. It's really well done. And then the other thing that I love about Kirk in this episode is this episode is called Balance of Terror. It's all about how fear pushes you to make cruel decisions it pushes you to make decisions that are not well thought out and throughout the whole episode you can see kirk resisting that fear he is resisting these knee-jerk reactions based on biases that styles is like the poster boy for 
what not to do. Like every every step of the way, Styles is making assumptions. He thinks he knows what's going on because of what happened in the past. So he's like, this is definitely the Romulans. They definitely did all this. They definitely did that. They're definitely and at no point is Kirk like co-signing it. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's always re-examining what he knows to be true. And that is the sign of an uh, open-minded, thoughtful person. And I appreciate that. And the fact that he doesn't let what he, you can see his fear clearly several times in this episode. And every time he resists that fear and pushes through to make thoughtful decisions. And then one thing I do want to say too, is you were, you brought up Rand Kennedy. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very interesting how they used women in this episode. Not necessarily good, <laughs> but interesting. Mm -hmm. And that they were definitely there to kind of show what you're fighting for kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Starting with a wedding, Rand comes onto the bridge in the middle of a tense moment for basically just to be there so Kirk can look at her and like feel feelings and comfort her. And so like... A, a, Uhura is a, a bit removed from this, thank goodness. But, like, Rand and Martine are very clearly used for this purpose. I would say, and not to step on what you're, you're about to say here, I think we were going the right, the same direction. I would say, I would make the argument at least, that Uhura did serve to show what was worth protecting. Because here's this, you know, accomplished, accredited officer who can do more than one thing on this bridge in this crisis and reacts in a way that a person would need to in a shipwide crisis. So if anything, she's worth protecting too. Oh, I hundred percent. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying more that she's the only one whose worth isn't in relation to yeah. the men. Oh, 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 I see. I see. Yeah. She's not used as a crutch to, to heighten the emotion for men. Gotcha. However, this is, the I think the first, maybe the only time we see Kirk actually having to deal with the consequences of losing a crewman. Yes, mm -hmm. which is is kind of interesting. You know, the, the the red shirts have become just a joke in the world, not even in in Star Trek fandom, but in in this episode in particular. Not only do we have McCoy fighting for like let's not start a war because so many people will die, we have specific people that we have met. At the beginning of this episode, one of whom has who has died. Kirk has to end this episode by going and comforting the. I guess she's not a widow yet. The fiance of the dead crewman. Mm -hmm. The only one. What are the odds? She handled that <laughs> way better than I would have. I would have had to be decommissioned <laughs> if my fiance gets killed in battle. The day of we're supposed to get married? Oh, no. I need to go. I need to take a leave. <laughs> I need to uh, take a leave of absence. I need to put in some PTO, please, because I'm not okay. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the point of that scene and the point of the, the wedding at the beginning is to underscore that there's there's a cost to war that you you have to be aware of. I really like that. And I thought that that idea of a wedding of love of like these softer emotions kind of being celebrated in that way was quite poignant and then 
Kirk trying to not justify, but like explain why his sacrifice was important. I don't know. I just, I found it to be a very poignant way to end the episode. I agree. I I do feel the the placement of a chapel on a starship is a little weird. Yeah. (laughs) There is, I read so much prepping for this episode. And like, there were so many people who, who sort of proposed, maybe this is really an all purpose room. And it's sort of like, dressed as a chapel for this wedding. Um, and there were other people who were like, well, if there's a chapel, is there also a temple and a mosque and, you know, whatever structure that Vulcans practice their spirituality in? Like, right. they, they shake a lot of bells and they <laughs> make soup and then throw it at each other in a ritual soup throwing. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> there's plumbing everywhere. You guys should have seen it. I mean, ho- hopefully if there is a chapel, there is also, you know, a place of worship for everyone who's on in the crew. Yeah. And it, it's just interesting that these are the little things that like fandom has picked up and continued to talk about over the last 50 plus years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, for sure. I want to mention the title of the episode a little bit. I mean, it might be obvious to people, but the the phrase we're used to hearing like balance of power, right? In terms of like, let's make sure that you know us and our enemies have about the same level of of military capability so that nobody makes the first move it's attributed to uh, lester pearson in june of 1955 at the 10th anniversary of the signing of the un charter talking about how that balance of power has has changed so much with the addition of an atomic nuclear armament And he said, uh, attributed to him as saying, the balance of terror has succeeded the balance of power. So the the balance of terror title is about like, not only are these two powers going to go to war, they're going to annihilate each other if they go to war. Mm. Heavy stuff, yo. Yeah. Definitely a meaty episode. Like, it's so important that episodes like this exists not only in our fandom but just in in television you know what i mean in the media so that it can be referenced like there's there's so many reasons why this episode could be used in a curriculum Mm -hmm. somewhere to to explain or to show the nuances of bigotry and how it can manifest in all these terrible ways it's also clearly a world war ii story it's clearly a cold war story yeah but like it's it's relevant to any time you watch it you know i i i forget i I was on a panel somewhere at some point and somebody asked the question like post 9 11 what do we take from balance of terror Mm. right because again we had this quote-unquote invisible enemy and people were being targeted or or discriminated against based on how they look associating them with who people perceived as their enemy you know so it seems like this the who the enemy is changes with every generation but this is a constant refrain yeah and it's kind of a timeless story and one of the things that struck me is 
the uh, inclusion of internal Romulan politics into this episode, mm-hmm. in which you get the sense that the reason that they're even out there, and it's not made explicitly clear why they're even out there destroying outposts, outposts but you definitely get the sense that they're doing it because they have a political, a domestic political leader who is using xenophobia and a outward enemy to consolidate power at home and attack and is attacking more for domestic political reasons than inter- intergalactic political reasons, if that makes sense. And I found that to be pretty timeless, too. Stoking fear of uh, the other is mm-hmm. a time-honored tradition in politics. And it, 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 it works pretty much the same every single time. It's always dangerous. It should never be indulged in, and yet we still have not learned this lesson. No, nope. I think it comes from, you know, the part of our brains that are still, you know, prehistoric that rely on impulses to survive, right? Mm-hmm. I think that ancient part of our brains, it's like, I don't understand it, run away, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is extremely difficult to subdue. Primarily because it, it, it does keep us alive in so many ways. Um, but when it, it be, because the brain doesn't, I don't want to say, I don't want to take responsibility away from us and our, and our ability to navigate those reactions, right? Just because you have a knee-jerk reaction to something doesn't mean that it's... it's Okay or justifiable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't want to go down that route necessarily, but it's 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 a I think a, a large part of why we can't quite <laughs> get over that. Yeah, there's a concept that comes from at least I can't say it comes from, but I first saw it in a Tumblr post. I know, but the <laughs> the idea is that your initial reaction to something, the thing that happens automatically, is what you are conditioned to think, mm. and then what you find yourself thinking afterwards is what you have learned to think. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, framed in the sense of, like, somebody seeing the way someone is dressed and reacting to it negatively and then saying, oh, no, they can wear whatever they want. Good for them. And But it, it extends into recognizing that your knee-jerk reaction is bad means that you are learning. Yeah. That's true. And, I mean, our brains are trained to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's an unlearning process, and you have to take the time to do to work on it yourself. And you can't expect other people to do that work for you. But it's necessary to become a better person, so get cracking. <laughs> mm. And I want to say that all of this Star Trek, it, all of this is Star Trek at its best, in my opinion. It, this is sci-fi at its best, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And. It's it's taking something extraordinary and asking how would humanity react to it, and what does that say about us? And I like the one reason why I think this is extraordinary sci-fi that is better than uh, than your average media is that in the end, Kirk offers to save them. Mm. Yeah, he offers them quarter, and what that says about Kirk and what it says about the values of Star Trek. And I'm just grateful that this episode exists. For real. Well, I couldn't stop my wheels from turning, so I have a proposal for you. Uh-oh. Okay. Gryffindor, Klingons. Slytherin, Romulans. 
Ravenclaw Vulcans, Hufflepuff humans. Oh my god, you nailed it! Well, the reason that that works is because I'm a Ravenclaw, and when you are having that conversation at the very beginning, I uh, I didn't really bring it up, but I like I was like I like the Vulcans. <laughs> <laughs> so if that makes uh, Sue a Romulan, Kennedy a Klingon, and me a Vulcan, that uh, fits. <laughs> so if you don't want to use Hogwarts houses anymore, and I can understand why you don't. You can use classic Trek species. <laughs> oh, man. Rest in peace, houses. <laughs> Rest uh, in peace. So the last thing we do, because this is an episode review show, is we rate this episode. Andy, what is your rating of Balance of Terror? This episode is awesome. It is one of my favorite episodes of all time. I give it 10 out of 10 raised eyebrows on an oh shit Spock face. <laughs> All right, Kennedy, what about you? I would also say that this is required viewing for anybody who's interested in science fiction or, you know, the human condition whatsoever. I would give it 10 out of 10 danger pirouettes. (laughs) (laughs) And I am on the same wavelength. I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 neon pink Romulan uniforms. Yes! Pink Hound's Tooth, I miss it. I miss it so much. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. Romulan fashion. All right. We got to get out of here because we keep talking. But um, Andy, <laughs> where can people find you on the interwebs? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I am at First Time Trek. I'm Kennedy. Uh, you can find me both on Instagram and Twitter at that Mikey Chick. Awesome. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from Roddenberry Podcasts, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 